Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, I want to welcome you all to the, the first Sunday of this new year. Uh, you know, at the, the beginning of every year, uh, people across the world make their New Year's resolutions. Perhaps you have made some too. Maybe it's uh, going to the gym more. Maybe it's getting better organized. Maybe it's reading more. Maybe it's reading through the Bible in a year, which I encourage you to do. And if you don't have a reading schedule, I sent one out in an email. Uh, but if you want a hard copy, uh, Andres had printed some off. And if we don't have any left, come see me or him and we'll, we'll get you a, a copy so that you can read through the Bible in a year. But the beginning of the year is a good time to reflect on areas where we can improve things, where we can do things differently, because we have a sense that this is a new beginning, right? This is a new year. There's a new beginning. And so to start this year off, I don't want to offer you a New Year's resolution for the church, but rather I want to give you a call, a call to greatness, a call to be the ones that the eyes of the Lord follows on this earth. And how do you do that? How do we do that as a church? Well, from a worldly perspective, greatness is determined by the, the massive impact that you have. Right? Perhaps, the, perhaps the grandiosity of your work. Which, which, when you boil it down to, it's, it's what amazing thing have you done that people can say, oh yeah, that, that woman right there, that man right there, they're great. We have men and women throughout history whom we call great, like Alexander the Great, right? His military prowess was unmatched at the time. And by, by the age of 30, he had established one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. Or there's Catherine the Great, who ruled as empress of Russia during the latter half of the 18th century. People talk about Shakespeare as one of the greatest English authors of all time. Maybe we could add to that list individuals like Geoffrey Chaucer, or Jane Austen, or Charles Dickens. But these were great men and women, the great literary um, masterpieces that they created. Or perhaps in our time, we might put men like Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, on that great pedestal. In fact, one article does this very thing by asking the question, this is the title of the article, what made Steve Jobs so great? So apparently he was great. We'll turn this mentality to the church and then ask, well, what makes a great church? For many, it would be what church gives me the best experience? Is there a massive stage with props and, and a great production? Do, do famous Christian singers come and, and sing and stop by? Or from this uh, article titled 10 Principles to Building a Great Guest Experience at Your Church, and it begins like this. Number one, stop acting like a church. Instead of learning from other churches, begin looking at other public space that people go to. Visit resorts, restaurants, stores, and other public venues that have a great guest experience and have people come back for more. Take your teams, debrief, and build a list of what you can learn in principles and ideas to transfer to your church campus. So you want to have a better church? You want to have a great church? Well, don't act like a church. Now, to be fair, I'm not entirely sure what the author means by acting like a church. There are um, 
ways that churches have acted that are neither biblical nor helpful, but there are also characteristics of a church that must be there in order for it to be a biblical church. But the pursuit of biblical greatness, because that's the call I'm giving you, you personally and us as a church, that's the call I'm giving you at this new year, is a call to greatness. The pursuit of biblical greatness comes in a very different manner than all that I have said so far. The call to greatness is the call to humility. It is the call of service. We saw last week that the great men and women of this world who rule countries and have some type of authority are nothing before the Lord. He sees them, he watches them, and he laughs at them. But the ones upon whom the Lord looks with a lovingly fatherly eye are not the great ones of the world. In Isaiah 66 verse 2, this is what we read. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so we must be those who pursue humility. We want our church to have an atmosphere of humility. And with all that being said, I want us to look at our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 33. Mark 9. Beginning in verse 33. There we read. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, what I want to do is, before we jump into the text, I want us to begin by examining the context of these verses, right? Your Bible, like mine, might have a a little header before these verses. Some of them might not. Um... But, you know, when we see those headers in our Bible, what they do is they, they signal in our minds that there's a break going on. And that, that's unfortunate because verse 33 continues right after verse 32. And the contrast between the two scenes is striking. So look back, if you have your Bibles open, to verse 30, because this is what Mark writes there. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And so Jesus has informed them as they pass through Galilee on their way to Capernaum that he's going to die. In fact, He's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they are going to kill him. And then after three days, he will rise. Even if they didn't understand everything, well, what's, what's all this rising bit about? 
He was very clear that the Son of Man is going to be killed. And, and rather than being concerned about the meaning of this and being brave enough to just speak up and, and ask Jesus, Jesus walks ahead of them in silence as they follow in his trail, jockeying for position for who among them is the greatest. Dr. Garland notes a similar thing when he writes this, quote, the picture Mark presents has tragic cosmic dimensions. Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to his sacrificial death while his straggling disciples push and shove, trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. And so the contrast between the two scenes is stark. Jesus has proclaimed that he's going to be killed and the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest among them. That's not something young men are prone to do, right? puff up their chests and show how much better they are than others. But then look what happens. They're walking along, having this discussion. Jesus can hear them. He knows what they're talking about. And so they get to the house, and then Jesus asks them, what were you discussing on the way? Jesus often does things like this. He knows what is going on, and he gives the people around him an opportunity to just come out with it, just to, to say what they're thinking, what's on their hearts, what they've been discussing. And so Jesus asks them, what have you guys been talking about this whole time? And verse 34 says, but they kept silent. They kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, they had been caught. They had been caught. They were embarrassed. Here they are getting to walk with Jesus. Right? They're walking with Jesus himself, learning from him, seeing the amazing miracles that he can do. They're spending their days with the one who is the ultimate example of humility, and here they are fighting over which one of them has relative superiority over the other. Jesus didn't have any children but he had disciples, and they often acted like little kids. Here the disciples are fighting like little kids arguing, well, who gets to sit in the front seat of the car? But this was par for the course. It, was, it, it, it seems as though these, these disciples were often disputing with each other and with others. In Mark 8, 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring any, uh, any bread except for one loaf that they had on the boat. And so Jesus tells them, well, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees. And then in verse 16, the disciples are discussing and arguing with each other that they had no bread. Right? Well, it's your fault. That's why Jesus is upset. You didn't bring the bread. In Mark 9, 14, some of the disciples get into an argument with the scribes because they were unable to cast out an unclean spirit. And then a few verses later, in verse 38, they get into a dispute with someone who did successfully cast out a demon because he was not following them. They're constantly getting into arguments. In Mark 14, a woman anoints Jesus with ointment of pure nard, which was very expensive, and the disciples grumble among themselves about how she wasted it and how it could have been sold and, and the money given to the poor. And then, just a little bit after that scene, right after the, the, they take the Passover, Jesus tells them that they are all going to be scattered like sheep. But Peter quickly jumps in and says, right, to show his greatness and to show his, his bravery. He says, not me, Jesus, not me. If everybody else runs away, I'm going to stay. I'm a brave disciple. He's trying to show how great he is. 
These men argued with others, argued with themselves, trying to put others down and show how worthy they were to be considered the greatest and to be at Jesus' right hand. R.C. Sproul made a, a very good observation about this verse. This is what he writes, quote, This question the disciples debated was concerned with the superlative. This is an issue that we deal with in discussions all the time. We argue about who was the greatest singer of all time. We discuss who was the greatest baseball player ever. It seems that great is not good enough for us. We want to determine who is the best of the best. Sometimes, however, the discussion becomes more personal. This happens when we put ourselves into the debate and begin to evaluate our own merits against those of others. And so the moment you put yourself into the debate, comparing yourselves with others and to build your case for your superiority over everyone around you, you have just made yourself an enemy of God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. These disciples have been silenced in embarrassment because Jesus called them out. They were weighing their achievements to prove their greatness while Jesus is saying, I've come to die. And they're over there in the corner arguing, well, I'm better than you. So what does Jesus do? Verse 35, and he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so the first thing he does after calling them out is he sits down and he calls the 12 to them. In the ancient world, this, this was the posture of teaching. It's not like we do now where someone, a teacher stands up front and all the students sit around. This was teaching. This was Jesus saying, class is now in session. Sit down and listen to what I'm about to tell you. It's time to learn a lesson. And the lesson he teaches flips the way this world thinks on its head. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus has just radically redefined greatness. But this is what he always does. He turns our way of thinking upside down and, and inside out. Again, R.C. Sproul notes, quote, this is a paradox, but Jesus used this rhetorical tool again and again. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. If you want to be great, you have to suffer. He who is first shall be last, and he who is last shall be first. And the way to greatness is the way of service. If we want to be great, we must be the greatest servants we can be. You see, the world doesn't have categories for like that, uh, categories like that. You don't know how to process that. You want to be great? Then be a servant. The world does not see servanthood as a marker of greatness. In fact, greatness is actually marked by, do you have a servant? Is somebody serving you? If so, how many? Then you know who's great. There's a story told of Winston Churchill who got into an argument with one of his servants. Because things got heated, Churchill used strong language and he chastised his servant. Eventually, the servant just had enough and he spoke harshly back to Churchill. And Churchill couldn't believe his servant would dare to speak to him in that way. And so he said, well, who do you think you are talking to me like that? 
And the servant said, Sir Winston, that's the way you talk to me. And Churchill looked at him and said, Ah, but I am a great man. Churchill missed, he missed the point. He missed that greatness, true greatness is found in humility because humility serves. It gets down in the trenches where no one wants to be and it lifts people up. True greatness is living out Philippians 2. Philippians 2 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then what does Paul ground this in? He's calling us to humility, but what does he ground this, this way of living in? He grounds it in the greatest of all. He grounds it in Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, this, this humility. Have it among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There was nowhere lower he could go. Christ, the one whom the, through whom the world was made, entered into his own creation, had dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes, hung around with a group of guys that were always trying to prove how great they were and how they should be seated on Jesus' right and left. He was hated. He was unappreciated. He was mocked. He was scourged. He was crucified. And he willingly did that for sinners, for people who hated him, for you and for me. You know, it's one thing to be a servant of someone who appreciates what you do, who, who's thankful for what you do. But no one would willingly be a slave to somebody who hates them to somebody who despises them. Yet that is exactly what Christ did. While we were still sinners, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while you hated him, he said, I've come to serve you. And not only did he die for sinners like us, but in his death, he bore the penalty. He bore the, the punishment of our sins if you trust in him, if you believe in him. He became a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But in the end, he was highly exalted. And so the call that I'm giving you, that I'm giving us as a church for this year, is the call to greatness, but not in the way the world defines it. If you hear all this and still in your heart, you're saying, but I want, I want everybody to know who I am. I want everybody to know my name. I want to everybody to see how great I am. Then you may get it. You may achieve that, but that will be your only reward. And greatness like that is over in a blink of an eye. 
How often do you think about Alexander the Great? Probably not very often. And he was an incredible man. Did more by the age of 30 than probably any of us will do in our lifetime. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Servant of all, but declared great by God. It's such a radically different way of thinking that that the disciples hear it, but they still don't grasp it. Because in the very next chapter, in Mark 10, James and John come running up to Jesus. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to die, and they ask him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Enough of this infighting with the disciples. Let's take the initiative. Let's let's just go to Jesus and prove how great we are. So Jesus, grant us to sit at your right and left hand in your glory. We want people to see us next to you, Jesus. Even the other ten. This will show the other ten that they're the great ones among them. They haven't learned the lesson. So Jesus says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones, these are the world great ones, their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. My friends, let's be a great church. Not because we have great coffee or a flashy service, but because we are an army of servants for the kingdom of God, ready to help wherever help is needed. The elders have come up with some ideas as to how we as a church can help serve our community, which we're going to talk about in the future weeks. Uh, But as a church... Let us, let us start now. As a church, ask yourself, where can you help? How can you help? What can you do? Well, let's look at how Jesus illustrates what he means when he says that we are to be a servant of all. Because beginning in verse 36, this is what we read. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Why why does Jesus bring a child into the midst of of this discussion about greatness and service? It's because there's no reward for serving a child. They can't pay you back. Little, Little tiny ones don't even know that you're serving them. John Piper gives the answer this way, quote, the answer is that there's no political payback in serving children. They can't vote. And they don't give speeches about how great is your helpfulness. In fact, they pretty much take for granted that you will take care of them. They don't make a big deal out of the fact that, you're, that you pour out your life for them. And so children prove more clearly than any other kind of people whether you are truly great or not whether you live to serve or live to be praised. Serving children is not a flashy job. 
Your name does not usually get put up in lights. And yet children are a part of this all that we are to serve. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Right? Children are a part of that. Again, Dr. Garland notes this, quote, The greatest thing they can do is serve those who are forgotten and regarded as insignificant. Those who have no influence, no titles, no priority, and no importance except to God. I think there's a second reason why Jesus brings in a child into this discussion at this point, though. And it's because the helplessness of the child, the the inability of the child to do what needs to be done is exactly how we are before God. In your sin, you were helpless. In, In our sin, we are unable to redeem ourselves, to save ourselves. We are that child. You are that child. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And how did he do that? By sending his one and only son. And his son willingly came by becoming a servant for you. He came not to be served, but to serve, and what? To give his life as a ransom for many. Our God, our King, came to serve lowly, helpless us at the cost of his own life. We are not greater than our master. We should not walk around with an attitude of entitlement as if everyone owes us, as if the world owes us something. Husbands, don't look at your wives and think that they owe you. Wives, don't look at your husbands and think that they ought to serve you. Look for ways to serve each other. Kids, listen. Don't think that your parents, your mom and dad, are there to give you whatever they want or whatever you want. Your parents are not your slaves. You should be looking for ways to help them. Ask them how you can help them at home. What about the church? What about in the church? There are many ways you can serve in the church. But one way that that captures the, the, the very heart of what Jesus is saying is by serving in the creche. What glory is what glory is there in that? I want to be up on stage talking or saying something. Jesus, we want to sit at your right and left hand when you come in your glory. It's not all that different. You see, the creche is where greatness and humility meet. It is being a servant to those who can't repay you. To those who can't thank you. It is being a servant to all. By serving in the creche, you're, you're helping the little ones. You are allowing tired parents to sit and be a part of the service without at least some distraction. And you're helping others to, to be able to focus and, and be present for the service because little babies need attention. They are helpless. Just like you were apart from Christ coming to you. 
It is our hope that we will have the crash up and running in the not-too-distant future. But that depends on you. Here is a great way to serve in the church and a needed way to serve. When church is over, there will be a, a sign-up sheet for any of the members who want to be involved in the crash and to serve in this way. And so I encourage you to put your name down on it and see if we can get a, a good rotation going. But that's not the end of this passage. At the, at the end of this passage, Jesus says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so serving in, in the crash is not done out of guilt. It's not even done because you really love babies, but because you love Christ first. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We love our children best when we love God most. Well, let me end with this. Don't confuse being great with being known as great. There are many in this world who will spend their lives striving to be known as great. Being known as a great man or a great woman does not mean that you actually are. You want to see those who are great? They are the nameless, faceless individuals who serve God in this world by serving others. There are countless in this world who will die unknown, but they will be lifted up in the kingdom of God. The call for you personally and for us as a church as we begin this new year is to let us pursue greatness. Not as the world defines it, but as God defines it. In humble, Christ-honoring service. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we do pray that you would take these words and, and brand them on our conscience and on our souls and on our hearts so that the way that we live in this world be so radically different than the way that this world operates. That our desire would not to be our name in light so that everyone would shout our names at the top of their voices, but that we would serve for the glory of Christ so that others might shout the name of Christ at the top of their voices. That is a radically way, different way of thinking. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us that type of heart individually and as a church, that we would be those who serve. And as we get the crash up and running for the church, Lord, we pray that you would place it on the hearts of many individuals to want to serve in this way, to serve those who can, cannot say thank you because they are helpless. But we serve for the glory of Christ. Help that to be our attitude, knowing that our God 
humbled himself to enter into his own creation by becoming a man and a servant and dying. Help us to think about those things and to realize we are not greater than our master. Let us live to exalt him. Let us not desire to be first to show how much superior we are over the next person. But let us live in the trenches as Christ did for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing one more song.